Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 14. And rather than a Sunday lectionary reading, this is the lectionary reading for Christmas Day in the year C cycle of the lectionary, December 25th, 2021. For many, this is the text that will be used at Christmas Eve services, or for those churches that do have Christmas Day services, uh, they may use this text. And additionally, since Christmas falls on a Saturday this year, there are some churches that may even use this text on Sunday morning, December 26. This is a text that is uh, commonly read at Christmas Eve or Christmas Day services, and it focuses on a contrast between the powerful and the powerless. As the story opens in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we see Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire, ordering a census that is to be taken throughout the land. Now, Augustus is given this title by the Senate, uh, Caesar and Augustus, neither of which are the person's actual given name. Uh, the Senate bestows on Caesar the title Augustus, and Caesar Augustus functions as a, a significant ruler of the Roman Empire, ruled over for over 40 years, and many calendars and feasts and different altars around the Roman world were built to honor him. These calendars and feast days were oriented to him. Even in the Roman Empire, the entire Roman calendar was set according to the birth of Caesar Augustus. Caesar uh, Augustus presided over a massive expansion of the Roman Empire, a huge amount of infrastructure. There was not one person in the entire Roman Empire that was untouched by the rule of Caesar Augustus. And part of what the Roman Empire proclaimed is the assurance of a state of peace throughout the empire. It was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And really what this was is for the leadership of the Roman Empire, the Caesar and the Senate, this was a, an extension of their peaceful rule throughout the ancient world. But those on the receiving end of Roman rule experienced it very, very differently. They experienced it as an expansive hegemony and military power and occupation uh, erected against uh, other cultures, other governments, other lands. And so Caesar Augustus in this particular story occupies this figure of power uh, in ordering a census. And there's a tremendous argument about this census because it's really hard to align the story Luke tells about this census with any of the history we know from this day. The best we know from historical records outside of Luke's gospel is that there was not a Roman census that was ordered by Augustus during this period of time. There could have perhaps been a Palestinian census that was ordered during this time. It's hard to trace, but suffice to say that there is perhaps some kind of census that happened near or around this time. That's not meant to be deliberately vague. It's just a recognition that it's kind of hard to align Luke's story to the historical records we have of this time, both of which are somewhat incomplete. So the, the argument about this census is kind of a, a, a non sequitur. It's, a, it's an argument that really doesn't really have much value within the story. Luke is simply trying to frame the story of Jesus's birth kind of within a historical context during the rulership of Caesar 
Augustus. And when a census was taken, it wasn't taken to figure out how many people there were or what languages people spoke or what cultures they were from. The census was taken for a singular purpose, whether it was a Roman census or a Palestinian one. It was for the purpose of taxes, for determining who would be paying taxes and how much they would be paying. Now, unlike the Jewish zealots of the day who rebelled against this Roman occupation, who they would defy these decrees to be counted in a census, Joseph, on the other hand, goes to his ancestral homeland. Now, Joseph and Mary both live in the city of Nazareth, which is in Galilee. But for the purpose of the census, Joseph is required to return to his ancestral homeland, which happens to be in Bethlehem in Judea. The word Bethlehem, Bethlehem, it means city of bread in Hebrew. And it's King David's hometown, where David himself was a shepherd boy when Samuel first found him and anointed him to be the second king over the nation of Israel. So Joseph, in this case, goes up from his home in Galilee in the lowland, the hill country near Nazareth, and up into the hills, uh, arguably even mountains of Judea, to where Bethlehem would be located in order to be counted for the census. So this opening of the story is about power and the orientation toward power and Caesar Augustus and Quinarius's capacity to order a census and everybody has to come for the purpose of paying their taxes in order to fund this expansive Roman Empire. And here's where the key passageway opens up for us, that, that the powerful, at least in Luke's telling of this story and in his telling of many other stories in the life of Jesus, are about how the powerful are unaware of their powerlessness. The powerful seem to be disconnected from the limits of what power they have. Augustus or Quinarius are depicted as the most powerful presence in the world in this story, for example. Yet they become the very agents that send Joseph to Bethlehem where Jesus would be born. Jesus, who in a very uh, cosmic sort of way becomes the deposer of their rule. He usurps them, not by being in competition, but he surpasses it in every way. Jesus topples empires, rulers, and powers, not by, not by battle, not by violence or warfare, but by simply surpassing it in a, in a cosmic way. So this story sets the context of Jesus's birth, yes, but it also defines what power is and that which clothes it. This story in Luke's Gospel is also a story from the edge. In contrast to a story of power, it's a story from the edge. Now, there's lots of ways where this story demonstrates how the powerfulness of this story really emerges from the margins. So, in Luke chapter 2, Joseph enters this story for the first time. It says that Joseph returned to Bethlehem to be counted in the census and brought Mary with him. And that gives us a little bit of a clue about the census, because if it were a Roman census, Joseph would not be required to bring Mary with him. Joseph would come alone. But because he brought Mary with him, it helps us understand that this was perhaps a Palestinian census that could have been ordered by Quinarius and endorsed by Caesar Augustus. Because in a Palestinian census, Mary would come with him as part of his household. Now, what's interesting about the story from the margins or from the edge here is that they are not married. The 
narrative in Luke is clear that they're betrothed, which means in some ways they're forming a household or a family together, perhaps even living together, awaiting the birth of Jesus. All this is to say that the arrangement that exists between Joseph and Mary as they travel to Bethlehem is that they exist in a non-conforming household, and they perhaps even have to endure some scandal and gossip as they make their way, not only in Nazareth when Joseph agrees to take Mary as his wife, even though she's found with child before they're married, Joseph comes to Bethlehem as ancestral homeland where he's going to have relatives and other family members that are going to, of course, ask questions about this woman he's with that's not his, his wife yet, but yet she's pregnant. This is a non-conforming household, so there's a great act of courage here in some ways that's lying right beneath the narrative of the text that we need to hear, that Joseph and Mary both enter this scene with a sense of courage and grace. They arrive from the margins in Nazareth to the margins in Bethlehem. Now, the story tells us that Mary and Joseph cannot find a place to stay in the local inn. Now, Matthew's gospel goes to greater lengths to talk about how they can't find a place to stay. But Luke just simply alludes that Jesus was born um, in a, and was placed in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It's, a, it's an incidental in Luke's story. And it's no wonder they couldn't find room in the local inn in Bethlehem. It's all impacted by the census. Everyone is traveling to their their ancestral home, and so there's all sorts of visitors in town that wouldn't normally be there. So, of course, there's no place to stay. So what they likely did, as best we can figure out from a, 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 a historical and cultural perspective, is that they found space in someone's home. Now, the notion of Jesus being born in a barn is a not compatible with what we know of the first century world in Palestine. Many Palestinians lived in a single room home. And not only did the people live in that home, but any animals they kept lived in that home as well. And so what likely happened here is that Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem. There was no place for them to stay in the inn. And they were the recipient of simple common hospitality. Someone in Bethlehem would have made it their purpose to take Mary and Joseph in for the night. And some scholars even speculate that it was perhaps the innkeeper himself who took Mary and Joseph in that night into his own home. What's interesting about Luke's story of Jesus' birth is that the birth of Jesus, like the other Gospels, is understated. The birth of Jesus is recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's it. That's the entire story of the birth of Jesus itself. It's understated. And what it is, it's a, it's a pivotal moment in this story in verses 1 to 14 that we're looking at in today's uh, uh, podcast that verse 7 is the pivot point between all the events of Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and the census and how everyone ended up in Bethlehem to Jesus being born, and then we pivot to a different story about shepherds in a field. Now, one last word before we leave this setting of Jesus' birth. It says that he was placed in a manger, and what that was was a feeding trough for animals. It, it could have been made out of wood, attached to a wall or separate, or in some Palestinians home, Palestinian homes, this trough was actually carved out of the stone or the rock 
in which houses would oftentimes be built into a, a, a cave, if you will, or the side of a cliff. And so we're not quite sure what this might look like, but regardless, Jesus is laid in a manger because there's no other place for him to lay after he is born. Now, the stories from the edge continue. Not only does Joseph enter the story for the first time and embraces kind of the scandal that he finds himself in being uh, betrothed to Mary, not only can they not find a place to stay, so they find themselves in someone else's house with Jesus being born and then having been laid in a manger, but now these shepherds receive an announcement from the angel of the Lord that Jesus had been born. Shepherds are interesting characters in the Bible in that they were considered shady characters in the Bible. Even shepherds were not allowed to bring a testimony uh, in a trial because they were considered to be so unreliable and so shady. So it's interesting that of all of the people that the birth of Jesus is announced to, it's not religious rulers, it's not clerics, it's not civil leaders, it's not kings or queens or princes, it's announced actually to the most unreliable people that we would know about in this first century world, shepherds. They become the first eyewitnesses of what's happened, even though they're known to be unreliable witnesses. So the pivot in this story is remarkable from Caesar at the beginning to shepherds toward the end. Caesar, the ruler of the entire Roman world, to shepherds who are, well, notorious for not being reliable or truthful. It's like the contrast of going from the king to someone perhaps who's unhoused in the way we think of these kind of uh, cultural locations of these individuals in the story. The shepherds receive the message from the angel and they see the heavenly host and they function as a confirmation for Mary. And this is really the key passageway for us about the edge, that God's might and power appears at the edge. Everything about this story is counterintuitive. There are no religious scholars here. There's no powerful presence of a king or other authority in this story. This is the most significant cosmic event that has ever happened, and it happens in a single-family home with animals and some shady witnesses. This kind of narrative is not new to Scripture at all. Those who seek and desire influence and power are always treated as somewhat suspect in the Bible because God always appears at the margins and always appears with those at the margins. It's like the Apostle Paul says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And finally, this story turns us to a story of glory and peace. Not only is it a story of power and the edge, but it's a story of glory and peace that's really in contrast to Roman rule. So this vision becomes complete in the dual revelation that happens to the shepherds. There's two things that occur to these shepherds as they're in their field with the sheep. The first thing is they receive a message from an angel, and it's the the angel of the Lord. It's good news of great joy for all people. And embedded in the message is a a capsule, if you will, of the Christology or the theology about Jesus Christ that Luke embodies in his gospel, that the shepherds receive a message from the angel 
that says, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This Christology or this theology of Jesus as Savior, as Christ, and as Lord infuses Luke's gospel from beginning to end. These are labels that we'll see over and over again as Luke describes the being and work of Jesus. And this is the announcement that comes to the shepherds. What's interesting about these words is they echo some of the common language usually used for the Caesar. So it's a kind of a tongue-in-cheek sort of approach in the angelic message that the shepherds receive that in some ways, the, the text is telling us that Caesar, what he claims to be, is a bit of an imposter, and that this Jesus is the true Savior, the true Christ, the true Lord of all. They're laid in contrast with each other. And the, the second thing the shepherds receive beyond the message is they receive a vision. And the vision that they see is a vision of the heavenly host opened. So it's, a, it's this notion of this throne room in heaven in which God is seated on a throne and there's this whole heavenly host. In other words, uh, a, a gathering of people around that throne whose sole purpose is to engage in the perpetual worship of God. It's an image that we see again in other places in scripture, especially in Revelation. We read about it, of course, in Paul's letters. It describes this kind of regal state in which God exists. It's a vivid image used throughout the Bible. And it's a vision of God's power and greatness, and it's a, it's a vision that no Caesar or other earthly ruler will ever attain. They say, glory to God in the highest. So there's this centrality of God, and that the act of God and the birth of Jesus is the very focus, and that this glory brings about a peace. You hear what the heavenly host has to say in this particular text, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among people with whom God is pleased. The contrast is rich here, that God's power brings a peace, not the kind of peace that Rome brings, a peace at the edge of a sword, but a peace that comes in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus's birth as a gift of grace, but it is peace for those who receive it. It's very clear what verse 14 is telling us. And on earth, peace among people with whom God is pleased. So the experience of peace, the experience of the fullness of God is related to the capacity to understanding what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is the key passageway for us here. That the nativity is the fullness of God's glory in one child, in a manger. It's hard to grasp that everything in the universe pivots on this quiet event born in poverty. This is the paradox, that our search for power in our own lives over situations, over systems, over structures, it actually hangs here. It's where our capacity stops. That's where God's grace and power begin. So when we try to control everything, hold everything, keep everything, we're actually not allowing any space for God to be at work in our life because we're attempting to orchestrate all of it. So rather than being strong, perhaps what we need to be is to be real, recognizing that in God's grace that God will kind of fill in whatever it is we're missing. That in this incarnation, God has saved us, God has sustained us, and God has led us. 
Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. And our choice at Christmas, at the Nativity, is if we will let God do those things. Will we let God fill in all the gaps in our life, or will we keep trying to fill them in ourselves? It's a recognition of whether or not we're going to let this powerful grace of God that's revealed in the birth of this child to fill in all the spaces of our life where we need love and hope and grace in new ways. That's it for this week. I bid you all grace, a Merry Christmas, Christ is born, glorify him. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.